The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome to you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. It's good to be with you today. And let me just say, I'm not sure if Ben is here, but... I look forward to preaching on your birthday, Ben. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Now, it's good to be with you this morning, and I wanted to just remind you of a couple of events this night, Sunday, and the next Sunday night. Uh, Tonight at 5.30 is Trunk or Treat in the parking lot, so we will have candy, we will have hot dogs, chips, Bring your kids, bring yourself, bring a costume if you can. If not, just be yourself. Uh, We would love to have you here tonight, 5.30 to 8, Trunk or Treat in the parking lot. It's going to be a really good time. And then next Sunday night at 5, from 5 to 6, we've got a little family gathering happening, just a little family all-church meeting. And it's just going to be right here, actually. Five to six, we'll have childcare, and it'll be a great time to just hear from our leaders, hear from our elders, our delegates, and just kind of get an update on what God is doing here at the Springs and all the good that is being done. So I hope you'll be here tonight at 5.30 and next week at 5. But this morning... Uh, marks our 12th week in our 16-week series over the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is so long, so capacious, that we can't really cover it all. Um, So we're actually having to make a really big jump this morning. Last week, we were in Luke chapter 10, and this morning, we are jumping all the way to chapter 17. So I want to encourage you Uh, This coming week, over the next few days, if you get a chance, go ahead and read through Luke 11 through 16. There's some really, really great stuff in there that we just don't have time to cover on Sunday morning, but I hope you'll take the opportunity to dig into that on your own and get caught up to where we are today, which is Luke 17. We're in verses 1 through 10 today, which I'll be reading in the NIV if you want to follow along. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, 
Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So, you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord, we are your servants, and you are our gracious Lord. And we give thanks for the grace you have extended to us, the way that you have saved us, the way that you are saving us. And God, we give thanks for the good works that you have prepared in advance for us to do out of gratitude for that salvation. God, bless this church. Help us to trust our future in your hands. Help us to trust our tomorrows, our yesterdays, and especially our todays with you. God, give me the gift of preaching this morning. Let your Holy Spirit open up our eyes and ears, our hearts, to the message of your gospel. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. When I was in high school, my dad took me to see Billy Joel in concert. It was one of my favorite experiences with my dad, actually. We trekked down from Sioux Falls all the way down to Omaha, Nebraska on a Saturday and saw one of my all-time favorite growing up singer-songwriters, Billy Joel, in a packed arena. And it was a fantastic show. He played all the hits. He closed, of course, with that quintessential Billy Joel song, Piano Man. And it being a Saturday night when he got to the line, it's a pretty good crowd for a Saturday. He kind of looked around with this knowing smile and the arena just erupted. It was a great night. And afterwards, as kids tend to do, I talked my dad into buying me some merch. And so he bought me a Billy Joel box set called My Lives. Now this was four CDs, four discs of Billy Joel outtakes, demos, uh, recordings from live concerts, deep cuts, all that kind of good stuff. And I'll never forget the liner notes to that box set. Uh, for you digital children, there are physical copies of music. And when you open up the physical copy, there are notes about the music. Um, I know you know that, though, because you like records, right? There you go. Okay, so in the liner notes... I remember it said, if you only know Billy Joel by his hits, you don't really know Billy Joel. You know, if you only know Billy Joel by Piano Man and We Didn't Start the Fire, you don't really know Billy Joel. To really know him, you've got to listen to those deep cuts. You've got to listen to, to track six and seven. You've got to listen to that hidden gem on an album that was mostly panned to get a full picture of who he is. And I think the same can be said for Jesus in the Gospels. Right? If all you know about Jesus is the feeding of the 5,000 and the miraculous catch of fish, you don't really have the full picture. 
If all you have is the Lord's Prayer and the Golden Rule, those are great. Those are his radio hits. You know, those are, they're catchy. They're a big part of his career. But that's not the full picture. I think sometimes we, we build our picture and image of Jesus off of just a few marquee moments or sayings or phrases, but you've really got to pay attention to the whole discography. We've got to listen to the deep cuts if we want to know the Jesus of the Gospels. And so that's where we are this morning. We're in Luke 17, and uh, some of you, depending on your mileage with the Bible, will recognize some of this. But these are not top 40 hits for Jesus. They didn't shoot up the gospel charts. These are deep cuts. And that's where we are this morning in Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. So let's dive back in to the beginning, verses 1 through 3. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So, watch yourselves. So Jesus starts by affirming the inevitability of sin, that this is a fallen, broken creation, and that stumbling blocks will come. Stumbling blocks, enticements to sin, enticements to leave the faith, to be tripped up on your way into the kingdom. But Jesus says, woe to you if they come through you. He says, it'd be better to have a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea. Yeah, you're not going to find that one embroidered on a pillow at Hobby Lobby. Jesus means business. And if you, if you didn't know, a millstone is how they crushed grain and made bread. And so the one that Jesus is probably referring to is the one that a donkey would have carried around the lower stone. And so he's saying it'd be better to have a, a concrete collar than for you to trip up one of these little ones. And little ones doesn't necessarily mean children. It's probably referring here to new believers, new disciples, people coming into the faith. And Jesus says, don't you dare make them stumble. There was a pastor, theologian, and blogger who actually passed away earlier this summer. And on his obituary, on the blog, they put one of his famous quotes. Um, I think it could actually be kind of a humorous quote if it wasn't so painfully true. He said, God invented the church to give atheists a fighting chance. Ouch. God invented the church to give atheists a fighting chance. Don't you dare be an atheist's best argument against faith in Jesus Christ. Don't you dare make it any harder than it already is to sign up to follow Jesus Christ through sin, through malice, greed, licentiousness, faithlessness. 
don't make it any harder than it already is. It's already hard to get somebody to sign up to walk the road to Calvary with Jesus. It's already hard enough. And there are too many out there who have rejected that road because of us. And Jesus says a gruesome and grotesque death would be a better fate. But the unfortunate truth, church, is that we will stumble. We will sin. We will be tripped up. And Jesus knows that better than anyone. And so he moves to this next section, and right after condemning sin, he moves to how to deal with sin. How do we deal with sin when it enters the community? He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. This uh, imperative verb there about must forgive, it's pretty emphatic. And so Jesus is setting up this culture of radical forgiveness in his community. Seven times in a day, he kind of gives this hyperbolic situation of somebody coming to you seven times, sinning against you, rebuke, repent, forgive, sin, rebuke, repent, forgive. He says, if they repent, you must forgive them. You know, in a Mediterranean first century culture, highly attuned to retributive justice, highly attuned to the need and desire for vengeance, those are hard words. And they're hard words today. I'm not sure they're any easier. But Jesus says, this is how my community is going to be shaped, by forgiveness without remainder. And notice that it's preceded by something pretty hard too. If your brother or sister sins, rebuke them. We're not all that good at rebuking, are we? You know, when is the last time that you spoke a word of rebuke or correction to somebody who is not your child or your subordinate at work or your pet? Right? When is the last time you rebuked someone, in other words, that you had clear authority or power over, that you didn't? Probably not all that often. I think there are a few reasons why we don't do this, perhaps. I think it's possible that maybe we don't live close enough to one another to rebuke each other. Maybe we're not close enough. We, maybe we do this a little bit better in our connections groups, but we're not in each other's lives enough to really even see the sin all the time, much less feel comfortable saying something about it. Or maybe we don't rebuke because we're afraid that that's not really our place. You know, culturally, it's just you've got your life, I've got mine, you do you, I'll do me. You've got your sin, I've got my autonomy, and I don't even want to risk hurting the relationship. Or maybe 
we don't rebuke or correct or call out sin because we're a little bit afraid that it could be turned back on us. But here's why these excuses have some problems. The problem is that righteousness is a team sport. Righteousness is a team sport. It's not a solo event. It's not a one-man play. It is a team endeavor, right relationships. That is what righteousness is, that you and I are reconciled, that God is reconciled. Righteousness is a team sport. And so my sin affects the community. And so if you're in a hard place, we all feel on the rocks. Right? If your relationship with your sister or brother is out of whack, we feel it too. And if your relationship with God is out of joint, the whole church has back pain. Righteousness is a team sport. We're not a voluntary association of like-minded, autonomous individuals, remember? We are a faithful communion of reconciled people of reconciled people. And so Jesus says, in order to have that, in order to have the kind of community I want in the church, remember he's speaking to the apostles, the future leaders of the church here. He says, in order to have that, you're going to have to be honest with each other. You have to talk about sin. You're going to have to rebuke. You're going to have to repent. And absolutely, uncompromisingly, you're going to have to forgive. So it's no surprise that in light of these astounding standards that Jesus sets, in light of this radical forgiveness, that the apostles respond with, increase our faith. Jesus, there is no possible way we can live up to these standards. And so in verse 5, the apostles go to him said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. I wish we had more time to, to park here for a moment, but we've got to keep going to the end. But I think this imagery is really interesting. He's talking about probably a black mulberry tree that would have had a very extensive root system, obviously very strongly planted, could live for about 600 years. And what I find so interesting here is how Jesus opens up a new vista of possibility. Jesus is is trying to attune the apostles' imaginations to what is possible in the kingdom of God. That faith opens up new realities. It opens up new possibilities for what is and can be real in our lives, in our church, our community, in the world. And so he says, if you've got faith as small as a mustard seed, just a modicum of faith, you can speak to this tree and plant it in the sea. 
And the reason that that is, the reason that the quantity of faith is not what matters is because it's the object of the faith. It's not how much faith you have. They say increase our faith. Jesus says it's not how much faith you have. It's the God in whom you have faith. It's the God in whom you have faith who can work with anything. Who can bring about new realities and possibilities because of his kingdom. And so if we possess this kind of faith, if we possess the faith that can rattle the foundations of the earth, well, it's no surprise that we might accomplish something wonderful and we might start to feel pretty good about that. Right? We might start to feel that we deserve a little recognition or a little glory. And so, again, we see Jesus anticipating this difficulty in verse 7. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. What an interesting little parable here. You know, I find it strange that in a gospel where Jesus is constantly overturning our conceptions of table manners, right, as Ben has talked about, that here he uses the image of kind of affirming this hierarchical role between the master and the servant. In a gospel where Jesus is constantly talking about how tables, which in that day and age reinforced people's social status and positions and roles, where Jesus is constantly using tables to upend that, how he uses this kind of more traditional image here. Right? A servant eating with a master is exactly the kind of image we would actually expect from Jesus. In Luke 14, if you get to reading that this week, he actually says, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, invite the cripple, the lame, the blind, anybody who has no power to pay you back. So we would expect him to upend that hierarchy. But he reinforces it here. Why? What is Jesus trying to say about human relationships? Well, I think he's actually not trying to say anything about human-to-human -human relationships. Jesus is talking here about our relationship to God. In relationship to God, we are always rightly subordinate. In relation to God, we are always rightly underneath. God is the potter. We are the clay. He is the creator. We are the creature. He is the master, and we are the unworthy servant. And so all that we do can never put God in debt. 
right? We can never put God in debt. All of our good works, all of our tasks, all of our achievements, none of that can earn extra credit with God, right? That's works righteousness. That's me saving myself, but God saves us by His grace. And in so doing, we respond in gratitude. We respond with the good works that are simply our duty. And what's beautiful, I think, about the Jesus of Scripture that we encounter not just in the highlights, not even just in the gospel deep cuts, but across all of Scripture. What's beautiful is that in the shape of the life of Jesus Christ, we see that God is not simply master. In the words of Paul the Apostle, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God is not simply our master. God is servant in Jesus Christ. God is slave. Takes the form of a bondservant. Jesus Christ from the highest infinite heights of heaven descends to the earth in absolute humility as a little child and he walks that road of humility all the way to Calvary. And he defeats the powers of sin and death on the cross and he affirms that form of a servant. And now Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to belong to my people, if you want to be a part of my community in the kingdom of God, you'll take on that form that I have shown you on the cross. And you will take in all your duties, all your good works, everything that you do, your tasks and achievements will be only a response of gratitude to my grace. And, and we respond as the servants in the parable do. We have only done our duty. We are unworthy servants. And just as Paul says, he says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, what could we possibly have that we deserve? Every breath, our next breath, is a gift of God. And we respond to that gift in gratitude. And if we want to have a community where we don't cause people to stumble, if we want to have a community where we can repent,
repent, where we can be forgiven. If we want to have a community where we have even the smallest amount of faith, the path to that faith is the humble cross of Jesus Christ. And we respond that we have only done our duty, that we are unworthy servants to Jesus Christ. Let's praise the Jesus that has shown us the form of a servant on the cross. Let's stand together and sing church.